You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this message by Pastor Terry Riley, which is the third part from our You've Got Mail series. For more info, please visit creekside.org. How you doing today? Good, good, good. If you would, take your Bibles or your Bible app or whatever you use and uh, turn to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start the second part of the outline that Jesus gave in his revelation for the book of Revelation. He gave a revelation fully of himself in chapter 1. Uh, Then in chapters two and three, he's going to talk to the churches of that day. And then from chapter four on, he's going to talk about end time events. And uh, we're going to land here on these seven churches for uh, the next number of weeks. If you look in your program there, you have your outline notes and uh, you'll see on there uh, a map. And I want you to see that the, the, the seven churches really have a threefold application Uh, Sometimes it's hard to draw the history uh, out and say, okay, this is what it means for today. And we can say, well, that's 2,000 years ago. What does it have to do with us? I was talking to uh, a friend after service today, and they were telling me, kind of giving me their story about how they ended up coming to Creekside about 11 years ago. They had, uh, and this is not not any kind of a slam or a diminishing of the Catholic Church, but uh, they said they'd grown up in the church there and that, uh, one of the spouses, one of the people from the family came and said, you know, it's, uh, they, they ended up coming here by, mis- not by mistake, but by happenstance, quote. And um, after they left, the person said, wow, I didn't know that we could understand the Bible for today. And so we're going to take these seven churches and understand that there's really three points of application for them. They had a local application Now, these churches are in what is today modern Western Turkey. And if uh, you see them, they're kind of in a route. We we start with the number one church, which is Ephesus. And so on your uh, outline notes there, you'll see where it goes from Ephesus and works its way north uh, to the rest of the seven churches. So it's almost like a horseshoe, and it goes around and down. This would have been the route, so it would have been easy for them to pass them off the ancient Roman postal route and where they circulated their mail and uh, so that each of the churches would have received them. Uh, The second point of application is it has an ecclesiastical or a church application. It's important to study these churches because most of the problems and difficulties that are going to be addressed in them are still things that the church today has to deal with. Have any of you been in a messy church situation or willing to at least admit it? <laughs> Churches are messy and you have to understand that it's, it doesn't, you know, we're, we're, we're humans. Uh, as someone said, if you find the perfect church, don't go because you'll quickly ruin it because, <laughs> you know, everything looks good on the surface. Now hear me, I, when I say all this, I love the church. And we're pretty fortunate that our church, it's not had a lot of messy things uh, in the last almost 30 years, but um, it it, it can be messy. And some of the things that they're going to deal with in these uh, seven churches, we still deal with today. So there's great application for the corporate church modern day. Uh, But they also have a personal application. These letters apply to us individually uh, because never forget you and I are the church. We're kind of this conglomeration, this gathering of the church today, this morning. But when you and I go, we become Creekside Church out there in our community, Creekside in the church of Jesus Christ. The church is a building, excuse me, the bill is, is people, not uh, the building. We say that a lot, but I don't ever want you to forget that. And it says, and Jesus says, we're going to read it here in a few minutes. Let the one who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the spirit is saying. 
So if you have two ears, it's kind of this directive to make sure that you're listening. And so what we want to do is make sure that as we go through these letters, that not only as a church, but as individuals, we're hearing what Jesus has to say to us. And now let me give you a little background on the church, uh, on, on the city of Ephesus. It was one of probably three major dominant cities on the eastern end of the Roman Empire, along with Alexandria, Egypt, and Antioch. It was kind of vibrant. It was really a vibrant. It was a big city. It was cosmopolitan. And it uh, had influence on both the east and the west because of where it was located. You'll see they're kind of on the southwestern side of what is today Turkey or Asia Minor then. So they were kind of on a trade route. So they were able to go back and forth between east and west because of the Mediterranean Sea. It was important politically. Kind of like our county seat today, where they would have a, had a Roman governor that was there, and oftentimes a lot of major trials uh, would take place there. It was a religious hub. It's where the church of Ephesus was plant, planted, and it began to move out from there and begin to influence that whole region. But they also had one of the main wonders of the world, the temple of Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. This is where they would actually go. This would be part of their pagan worship, where everything was accepted and everything had great license. Really, all the trappings of a major city of, of the United States. So these people would go there. And it wasn't unusual for them, well, it was part of their religious ceremony, uh, to engage with temple prostitutes and uh, do a lot of debauched and uh, uh, unspoken things. Uh, This city was a people of power, economic resource and influence, active in their community. They were into the arts. Uh, they actually had a cultural, uh, an amphitheater in Ephesus that's, uh, that would seat 25,000 people. They had, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, large events that would take place there. As a matter of fact, uh, just as a sidebar, uh, Sting, Elton John, Diana Ross, and others, people that you would know, have actually had concerts there uh, today. So the ruins are still there. You can go and see pictures of them or go and visit them. So Jesus now is he sending mail to these churches. So imagine as you listen to these churches for the next seven weeks that you're there. Because the Lord's going to come today and he's going to talk about this church. He's going to talk a lot about, a, a lot about the, the good things that they're doing and they're engaged in and they're involved in. But then he's going to begin to detail kind of one dominant overarching theme for these people to understand for this church at that time in that history. But it has incredible application for us today as well. Uh, A lot of you know I've been here for almost three decades. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this. Uh, This is the Sunday 28 years ago that I actually candidated for this church. And... um, well, thank you. I, I uh, thank you. That's very kind of you. But that's, it was 28 years ago today that uh, they said, well, I guess we'll have him. Nobody else out there. And uh, so I, I, I've been here. But it's interesting because in, in almost three decades, I've had this incredible gift of being able to dedicate so many kids. I've had the joy of doing so many weddings. I've had the privilege of being part of families uh, to do memorial services and, and all of those different things in different life stages. As a matter of fact, this past Friday, I got to do a memorial service uh, for a Creeksider that probably most of you don't know. Uh, he was 86, and uh, he passed away uh, at the end of December, and I was privileged to be able to do the ceremony. Well, what was interesting is afterwards, we uh, went to a, a dinner, and people, family was sharing things, and uh, his granddaughter gave, uh, showed me a, his, her phone, and on it was her granddad, that, uh, Jerry, who uh, we had just had the celebration for. She showed me a picture because he loved to dance. 86, and so this picture was taken, I think, within the last two years, and, you know, by this time, he was really, he wasn't getting around real well, and um, was, you know, just not getting around well, 
But it was interesting because at this thing, uh, the, the music comes on and he said he wanted to dance and he gets up and all of a sudden, and she's got a video of it, he gets up kind of slow and then all of a sudden he starts moving and then he's, he's got it going, you know what I mean? And uh, it, it was really wonderful. And then it's, they were talking about how he'd take a couple, took his wife and twirled her around and some other people because it just, it just kind of... Uh, this passion for dancing and then to be able to take his wife and spin her. There's a couple here today. Uh, it was, I can't remember how many years ago now, I got to do their 50th wedding anniversary. And they like to dance. And I remember going and kind of doing a vows renewal and then had a big dinner and then they had a big dance. And I remember watching them when they went out to dance together. And the music of 40 or 50 years ago started playing and they begin to dance. You could just see their eyes light up. You could see their bodies kind of catch a dose of energy and you could see them talking and you knew that there was just this love that was going on between them. And it's almost as if, imagine they were probably being transported back to another time of when that music was popular. And they're thinking about the passion and the love that started the beginning of that 50 years of marriage. When you think about that, you've all probably seen things like that. How many just say, I want to sign up for that? Yeah. I, I, I want that. 50 years from now, 60 years from now, 40 years from now, I want that. I want us to see this morning, Jesus is coming to his church this church in Ephesus has now been going 40 plus years and, and, it's, and Jesus comes and he's going to assess a number of fronts, but he really settles on what he deems is most important for this church. It's a loving devotion that after 10, 20, 30, 40 plus years, it is still going on. It's still real because this church would decide to walk with him. And like this church, there's six others that are going to have some other things to overcome. But he's going to narrow it down to one main thing with the church at Ephesus. Here's what I love about Jesus. You can always trust him to talk straight to you and to me. He's not going to hedge it. He's going to speak very clearly. And I don't talk, I'm not talking about an audible voice in cases you're, you're, you haven't been here very long. I'm not talking about this audible voice, but I'm convinced every one of us in this room can hear the voice of God. Maybe you came here today and you don't even know why. Well, it was probably the voice of God kind of prompting you to come here. Or maybe the first time you came. Or he prompts you or speaks to you to do something. That's this, the spirit of God that's working in us and through us and around us. And he sees in this church a fatal flaw that he, becomes, he comes and in his light, the light of his life, he begins to speak and to expose this to this church. People say, well, what, is, what does God sound like? Uh, probably this, that he's in charge. He's God, and I'm not. So when I hear his voice, there's going to be an authority to it that I know, you know something, I need to respond to that voice. It's going to sound like a little bit like the Bible, but in our own language. It's going to sound like the Bible, but not like King Jamesy. It's going to be understandable, and it's, going to, it's just going to resonate and be pretty clear. Sometimes I think it sounds like my wife. You know? <laughs> Because there are times, and no, she, you know, I, I've said this for years, she's never nagged me a day in my life, but here's, here's what I know, that there are times when I can, I can tell her voice, and I know exactly what it means, and what it's what she's speaking to about whatever that we're dealing with. And I think that's how Jesus is. When he speaks, it's not subjective, it's just. When he speaks, it's going to be gracious, but it's going to be challenging. When he speaks, it's going to be loving, but it's going to call it like it is. That's why James says that there's no darkness. There's no shadows of shifting in the life of God. 
So this letter, like all of the others, kind of follows this general pattern. There's going to be positive affirmation for most of the churches, and there's going to be a corrective challenge, a prescription, if you will. There's going to be an eternal motivation, and there's going to be re- revealing of Jesus from the, the, the characteristics and the attributes that we saw from Revelation chapter 1. So let's read what Jesus is saying now to this church in Ephesus. This is revelation. This is going to the apostle John who's writing it down. He says, to the angel, which is the messenger of the church in Ephesus, I want you to write these things. The one, speaking of Jesus, who holds the seven stars, and a lot of people believe this is either angelic messengers or it could be the pastors and messengers to the church, who walks among the seven gold lampstands, he says this. Now remember, Jesus told us that the seven gold lampstands are the churches. They represent each one of those churches because we're a light. We're to be a light to our community, to our world. Here's the powerful, precious, wonderful promise. He says, I walk among you. I am with you. I see you. Verse two, he says, I know your works. I know your labor. I know your endurance and that you cannot tolerate evil. I know that you've tested those who call themselves apostles and they're not. And you have found them to be liars, basically false teachers They talk one thing, they say one thing, but they live another, and by their teaching, they will take you another way. He says, you also possess endurance, and you've tolerated many things because of my name, and you've not grown weary. What he's kind of saying there is during this time, a lot of these churches, a lot of these people were being persecuted. Some of them are being killed for the faith. That's why John is given the revelation from the island of Patmos. And he says, I know you're suffering. You're going through things. We're going to see it in some of the other churches. But you know what? You kept going. These are all good things that he's speaking of. But now, man, get this but. Verse four, but. You know, I kind of got this against you. As a matter of fact, I got this against you. You've, had, you've abandoned the love you had at first. Some of your Bibles might translate that as you have left. You have left your first love. What's Jesus talking about? You've left me. You've left me your first love. So he gives, starts to kind of give his prescription here. And he says, well, remember how far you have fallen. I want you to repent and I want you to do the works that you did at first. Otherwise I will come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand, your church from this place unless you repent. Yet you do have this. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, God hates some things. And um, we'll talk about the Nicolaitans in another couple of weeks in another church that's brought up again. Verse 7 says, anyone who has an ear should listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. I will give the victor the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's important because he says, I want you to have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he's saying, this is for all the churches. This is for Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Laodicea, Philadelphia. Creekside. So he gives these affirmations. Think of one day you come to church and I pull out a postcard and I say, man, we got a word from the Lord. And, 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 and when we speak here, you know, we're speaking from the scriptures. And so every Sunday really is a word from the Lord. But let's say, imagine these people that really didn't have the Bible as we have it today. They just had letters that they would read to the church. And so they show up and, and, uh, and, and, and the pastor there says, hey, I got a postcard from Jesus. Listen up. And he begins to read it. And they hear these words of commendation, but then it goes to concerns. It's really, we see how Jesus communicates to us. Uh, John chapter 1, John, who is receiving this revelation, who is Jesus' BFF, he says that Jesus came twice. In chapter 1, he says, Jesus came in grace and in truth. 
that the way he responds to us is initially through his grace, but he'll always speak truth. And it's a powerful way when you're dealing with people to communicate with grace, but also to speak the truth. And I think they're hearing, they're hearing Jesus saying all these good things about him, but then there's this but. These people were focused on spiritual service and giving, and they were willing to pay the price to follow Jesus. And now as a church, they'd been doing it for 40 years. Some of the things that, you know, Jesus commends them for is they worked hard to make a difference in their culture. They didn't get into a holy huddle and just stay together, even though it was difficult, but they lived the gospel out in the mainstream of their city and in their culture. They were doing good works, man. They stepped into the battle. They didn't tolerate wicked people and wicked things. Now, let me translate that for you. Remember what I said? They didn't move into a holy huddle and they didn't begin to look around, which can be one of the biggest issues and problems that a church can can take on. The spirit, when you begin to say, oh, we're so righteous, we're so good, we're doing so many good things and you begin to look down on people and you begin to look down on evil and you can hate evil and you can hate some of those things that we know are abhorrent to the life of God. But you never forget that every person is someone that Jesus Christ died for. So he's not saying you, you hate those people, but you hate the things that hold people back and keep them from coming to Jesus. And you don't enter into it. You have yourself a strong expression of worship of the living Christ. You don't go down to the temple of Diane anymore. And you don't engage with those prostitutes. And you don't engage in the debauchery that goes on. You don't engage in the idol worship of this fertility goddess. No, you've learned to come to Jesus and to stay with Jesus. And you're walking and you're living counterculture and therefore you can walk in freedom. He says, you're making a difference in your culture. We'll see that a little more in a few minutes. He says, you're doctrinally true. And you know doctrine. You're well taught, man. You smell out the false teachers. You recognize the evil. But I've been around enough that I've seen where churches where you can begin to almost be so proud of that you can let pride and contention and squabbles over minor issues become a major issue between people. Oh, we need to be this. We need to be that. We need to do this. Sometimes it can lead churches to this rigid legalism where we can become so right, believe we are so righteous that we begin to look down on everybody and extract ourselves from the trenches of life. And pretty soon, the scripture is no longer a surgical tool that can touch and heal and cut into the deep hurts of life and cut into the cancerous sin that begins to embed itself in the hearts and lives and people, but will use it as a sword to maim and cut people. Jesus says, don't forget, my life is bookended with grace and with truth. Paul was pretty concerned about this doctrinal issue because as he's getting ready to leave Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, the leaders around him are literally just weeping because he's getting ready to leave. And he looks at him and he says, I want you to be aware. I want you to be on alert. I want you to make a plan because as soon as I leave here, there's going to be false teachers that are going to come in like ravaging wolves. And they're going to try and take you apart. They're going to try and destroy the church with their teachings. And so Paul, he was speaking into their life. And, and, and later he writes to the pastor that followed him to Timothy in First and Second Timothy. And he says, Timothy, teach sound doctrine. Sound doctrine just means simply healthy teaching that brings health. So the word sound means health. It's going to bring health to them. You all care about the truth. Stay with it. And we see here years later that they're still standing by the truth. Jesus says to the man, you've pers- pers- persevered in hardship. Now, let's face it, isn't it hard a lot of times to be pure in a city of rampant paganism and 
debauchery and immorality. But he says, you didn't grit your teeth and you didn't just white knuckle and hang on. You stepped out. You had spiritual stamina and you stepped into the lives of your community and you made a difference. So Jesus, he goes through this this list of incredible, you're doing this, you're doing this. I love what you're doing here. I see how you're doctrinally pure. I see how you're persevering. And then comes this big word. But. Don't you kind of hate that when somebody says that to you? You're a great person I've ever seen. Oh, I love you, pastor. But. And you know that everything they said before really means nothing. With Jesus, it does. He says, but. And you're sitting in that congregation, the church of Ephesus, and you're kind of like, yeah, right on. Look what we're doing. And all of a sudden there's this but. And it says, I have this against you. Say what? Man, look what we're doing over here. And, and. Jesus says, yeah, I got this against you. And you know, it's kind of serious enough that if we don't think about it, look at it, talk about it, guess what? You're, you're not going to be a church any longer. Ooh, this must be serious. And it is. You, you know there's three things that God can't do, the Bible tells us. God cannot lie. He cannot tempt you and I with evil. And he cannot make you or I or anybody else love him because he created you and I in such a way that we would respond to his love because we see and have a revelation, spirit leading that we understand what he did for us. And we go, wow, you did that for me. How could I not turn to you? How could I not give my love to you? How can I not be committed to you? How could I not walk with you? So when John, through the revelation of Jesus, is speaking to them, he's not saying, will you love me? He's saying, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to remember how you used to love me. Remember how you used to love me because this is so critical because everything you were doing flows out of that. See, in our culture, what do we do in an evaluation or what do we do when somebody, uh, you know, begins to pick something out? First thing you do, they say, oh, you're doing this good. Oh, yeah, thanks. They say you're doing this well. Oh, you're doing great over here. I love this. But you know, There's this thing over here that we got to work on. What is kind of the Western culture? What do we do? Okay, we're going to come up with a plan. We're going to take care of this. Okay, wow, I've lost my first love. I've left left my first love. What am I going to do? What am I going to do to begin to maintain this passion and this love for Jesus? We're going to come up with a solution. So maybe some of us in this room would say, well, you know what we really need is good leadership. I mean, we just really need a good pastor. We need a super staff. That that's going to help us maintain this love and this devotion for Jesus Christ. I mean, listen, I, I, I want good leadership as much as anybody. It's much better than really poor leadership. But some of us in this room would say, ah, we just need better leadership. Then I'll be devoted. Really. Do you know who the first pastor, the founding pastor of Ephesus was? It was Paul. Does anybody here know who Paul is? Have you ever heard of him? He's a great thinker. He's bold, dynamic, powerful gifts. He's led by the Spirit. He wrote over half of the New Testament that we preach from today. That he sent to all the churches so they could read it. You know who followed him? A duo, a dynamic duo called Aquila and Priscilla who were considered New Testament prophets and they took over. For Paul. And they begin to establish the church and do great things. And then Paul went back there. And during that time, he brings Timothy and he sets up Timothy to be the pastor after Priscilla and Aquila. He's the one that Paul mentored 
was his son in the faith, and he wrote to him first and Timothy, uh, first and second Timothy, and challenged him on how to pastor that church. And then after Timothy was done, many believed that the apostle John, one of the original 12, the one that's receiving this revelation, the one that took Jesus, that he took Jesus, his mother, and they lived in Ephesus, and the apostle John pastored this church. Those are some heavyweights. Would you give me that? You know? But hear me. 40 years later, it wasn't enough. It wasn't about the leadership. Let somebody say, okay, well, okay. How about if we just consistently saw signs and wonders and miracles? And when people came to church, they would see people. I mean, they would just get, you know, just healed or thrown on the floor. I mean, just things would happen. And people couldn't stand against the life of Jesus. And if we saw that consistently, oh, how we would love him. How we would continue to be devoted to him. You see, John chapter 6, multitudes got fed by Jesus, and within a couple of days, he went back. He didn't feed him this time, started talking to him, and at the end of John chapter 6, they all left. Acts chapter 19, Paul is part of this church, and as he's establishing it, there's these incredible things that are taking place. There's miracles, people getting healed, demon possession, people are getting delivered from it. People are coming to Jesus left and right, and Paul's praying for all these people, and all of a sudden, somebody comes up to him and says, Paul, could you come over here and pray for these people? He goes, oh man, I'm busy, man, I'm taking care of this stuff over here. And so what do you, he goes, hey, I got this handkerchief, go take it. Just put it on them, touch them with it. They'll get healed or they'll get the demon cast out of them. That's good for at least four or five miracles. Take it. I don't know how many, but so he takes it and it happens. And it says later people came back and he says, here's my apron, take it. These people were seeing a revival, a renewal of the spirit of God at work. They come into that church. It says as soon as Paul set up his post there, he goes there and he says, have you heard the the Holy Spirit? Oh no, we haven't heard of it. He says, okay, prayed for him. They received the Holy Spirit, started speaking in tongues. This was a miraculous beginning of a very dynamic ministry. Uh, 40 years later, it still wasn't enough. Okay. What if we rocked the city with God's presence and served them? And every day we got up, we were just so happy about what God is doing here. And it kept us devoted and focused and loving Jesus because we see and we're serving and we're doing all that. I mean, we're just devoted. Ephesus was a culture, had a culture that was affected by the church's gospel influence. Again, you can read this in Acts 19 and 20 while Paul is there. Demetrius was a silversmith who fashioned these little silver shrines of the goddess Diana. And you can look them up online and you can see that a lot of them, uh, when, when they see these little goddesses of Diana, it's, it's not like, but it's, it's, you know, it's like how we carry a crucifix or a cross around today. It would have been like these people, these pagans, hey, I got my, I got my shrine to, to Diana. But if you look at them, most of them, they were just full and they had breasts all around them because she was the goddess of fertility. Well, Demetrius got ticked off because as the gospel began to spread in their community, guess what happened? Uh, The economics went down for all of these people. So Demetrius begins to gather a lot of these people that are upset about the infringement of the gospel upon their pagan economy. He gathers all these people and they gather at this 25,000 seated uh, amphitheater and they begin to chant. For two hours, they simply chant. Great is Diane of the Ephesians. Great is Diane of the Ephesians to really come against Paul and all of those people. 
There was such a spiritual renewal that the economy of the sorcerers, the astrologers, the spellcasters, the witchcraft people, the divinators, it was affected. And it says in Acts 19, 16 through 20, that the word of God prevailed mightily. It says that those people came to a public square and they began to bring all of their books and all of their trinkets and everything. They threw them in a pile and they began to burn them. And it's recorded that there was, that if you totaled all of this up, it would have been close to 50,000 pieces of silver, which would have taken 10 laborers 20 years to earn. See, this gospel so infected this culture, imagining that happening in Contra Costa County. It would be like all of a sudden they shut down all the strip clubs. It'd be like they, 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 they shut down all the fortune tellers. They shut down. They have an impact on all the human trafficking that takes place in our county. And we think, yeah, if I saw that all the time, I'd really love and be devoted to Jesus. It wasn't enough in Ephesus. Okay, okay. Well, how about if we build disciples? You know, we've got to build strong disciples. We've got to plant churches. We've got to extend the churches all around. I mean, that'll help keep my love for Jesus and focus on him alive. Paul did that. Ephesians 19 tells us that he came back and for two years they were, they were being uh, ostracized and they were being attacked. So he took a bunch of people aside and he said, I'm going to turn these into pastors. I'm going to disciple them. And it says he did that for two years. And then he sent them out and they started churches. Out of that little two-year gathering in Ephesus, what took place is that, that, uh, that they probably started the other six churches in that little circular route, postal route. And it's believed that they probably started a total of over a hundred churches, home churches, out of that two-year period. (laughs) You know what? Still wasn't enough for this church to maintain its love and its devotion. One more. Because you're probably thinking of this one too. Well, you know, here's the deal. If we just had some deep teaching. I mean, just really deep teaching. That's what we really need. We need to go deep with God. Does anybody in this room have the book of Ephesians in your Bible? Probably the only deeper book than Ephesians is the book of Romans. If you want to understand the church, if you want to understand how to function as a Christ follower, read the book, know the book of Ephesians, because the first three chapters are replete, it's filled, it's incredibly deep with doctrine, who we are in Christ, what Christ has done for us, how he's called us, how he's forgiven us, how he's raised us up to the heavenlies, and then there's this profound practicality in verses four, five, and six on how to live it out and how we face the wiles of the enemy of our life. It is deep. It would have been a book that they read. I mean, how would you feel? Imagine if, you know, there's the book of Corinthians and there's the book of Galatians and there's the book of Ephesians and there's the book of Martinez you would say, wow, we've really arrived. (laughs) That's what they had. Wasn't enough. Within 40 years, this is what Jesus is saying to him. He's coming and he's bringing correction. Hear me now, hear me. All of those things are so important. They're like the spokes on a bicycle wheel that give it balance and give it the, 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 the ability to run and to roll and to move forward. But see, sometimes as church people, we can begin to think, if we just had that, if we just had this, oh, if I just had that, I would be better. And I don't think you can look at all of those things. Ultimately, you have to look at you. 
Because Jesus isn't going to make you love him. Because Jesus now speaks of his concern to correct. All of these things are important. But he says, you know something? You, you, you didn't lose it. It wasn't lost. Surely I didn't go anywhere. He uses the word you left. You abandoned. See, Jesus showed his love for us, didn't he? I mean, he is all, if you read Ephesians, you, you get that. He's all in. Gave his life for us. And see, as you read these things in chapter two, you know, there's really nothing. There's no evidence of bad things. There's no statement of enticement that led people away because of sin in their culture. But the idea, the thought is that maybe they were just doing so much. There was so much good going on. They got distracted. They got so busy. They're just doing things. Does that happen in marriage? Think back at the beginning when you were pursuing one another. There's nothing that could stand in your way. You would do anything to be with this person. You would do just about anything to be able to talk to them. They were your focus. They, you were wholly devoted to them. Then you get married and everything's great. You got the honeymoon. And then you can't wait for the fruit of your lives to begin to produce things. Things like children. And you get these beautiful children. And while that's going on, you're... You know, they're growing up and you're working hard to get your job set up so you can be, have some financial security and abilities to go buy a home or whatever it is you want to buy or have a decent running car and you work hard and pretty soon you're working extra hours. You're going here and you're doing this and you're doing that and all the while your kids are growing up and pretty soon you got three kids and, <clears throat> excuse me, they all have, you know, they have a baseball game over here, a baseball game over there, and a baseball game over there during the week. And pretty soon you're taking them to all of these different things and you're running around and it's all good things. And you're loving it. You're thinking and you're loving it. You're sitting there with your kids at night and say, wow, you played great today. Oh man, I just love being with you. I love watching your games. And oh yeah, you got to go to the recital. Okay, we're to get up from dinner. We got to go there. And you're doing all of this stuff. And the very thing that you started with the core of your marriage gets kind of displaced. Not because you meant to. Not because you wanted to. It just happened. And after 10 years, after 15 years, or by the time you come to the empty nest, what's going on? I, I really don't know you. As a matter of fact, I don't know that we have a whole lot in common. And pretty soon what's happened is didn't even know it, but you left your first love. You left the very thing that brought the promise of fruit and life and love. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. Because see, Jesus, he, he, he likens uh, our marriage this way to our relationship with him. And he says, you know something? I never moved. You did. It happens with Jesus. I've been amazed. And this study just kind of happened upon me. In the last few months, I've read of three megachurch pastors that have done two things almost simultaneously. They walked away from their church and they walked away from Jesus. I mean, we're talking one pastor, pastored in, in 12 or 15 years. He was running 10,000 people. He didn't leave his church. He decided that he would take them away from the Bible. So he worked his church from about 10,000. It's now probably about 500. Because he doesn't even preach from the Bible anymore. It's like, it's an awakening. It's whatever feels good. I've heard of two worship leaders, world, fairly world-renowned, whether we know them or not. I didn't know who they were, but they travel, and they do worship. And they just said, you know, 
think we're just kind of done. We're done with the church and we're done with God. Why does that happen? It doesn't happen all at once. If you read their stories, you'll see that it was incremental. Jesus is among us today. This is a lampstand, and he's here. He says, I see what you do. I know who you are. What would he say? Well, how would he affirm us? Creekside is 87 years old. I, I think he might say some of these things to us. Pull out the postcard. Here's what I know about you. You love your community. You serve your community. You are a most generous church. You're more generous than most churches can be because you give and you believe in it. You help world missions. You help local missions. You help your schools. You help other people and things in need. And you're willing to bless. And I applaud you for that. You love kids. You make them a priority. There's nothing that's off limits in your church for them. They can run, they can play because you want them to enjoy church and Jesus. See, one of the reasons that we're working on readjusting our mission and vision statement is because over this last year, we came to the conclusion that we're so busy that our calendar was controlling our church. We weren't controlling it. And so we had to make some cuts. We had to make some changes. We wanted to change where the direction of our ministry is so we're even more in our community instead of just focusing on doing things here that bring people to us. Why is that? Because I was concerned. I was so, I was so here and there and scattered and trying to keep track of everything along with our staff that it wasn't about Jesus. It was about trying to keep the machine going. And I think Jesus would say, man, you're doing a lot of good things, but be careful because you haven't been keeping the main thing, the main thing, and the main thing is always Jesus. See, here's what Jesus says is good theology. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength and to love your neighbors as yourself. See, if you consider yourself or want to be a Bible scholar and you're not loving God and people, you're a bad theologian. And if I can say it, a bad Christ follower. There's a lot of jerks in the church. Not this church. There's a lot of people that get their own agendas. There's a lot of people that care more about winning an argument than they do loving a person. I look back, I've only won one argument that led someone to Christ in 42 years of life. It's, God's, it's God who brings conviction to people. It's the Holy Spirit who brings conviction. It's God who judges them. Our call is to love them and to present the gospel in ways that they can understand. Thanks, Five. Appreciate that. <laughs> See, sometimes we think that knowing is more important. But it doesn't matter what doctrine you know if you don't love God first. And love people. What's his challenge? What is Jesus' challenge? What's his prescription to change their direction and for other churches throughout history when you begin to lose your first love? And so let's make sure that we move this from Creekside and Ephesus to us as individuals because we're Jesus' church. He says, number one, remember. He says, remember from where you have fallen. Recall what you used to do. 
And the idea of remember from where you've fallen, it's kind of the same language, isn't it, that we understand in the narrative of Genesis chapter 3 when it says that Adam and Eve fell. It's when they fell out of relationship with God and had to be brought back in. And he says, there's those times, if you're not careful, you'll fall away and you'll begin to, I'm not talking here about salvation. I'm talking about just falling away from keeping Jesus as your priority, as the lover of your soul and the one that you pursue. And he says, I want you to keep in mind your past life. I don't ever want you to forget what I pulled you out of and what I've redeemed you from, because that will be critical in never losing your first love. Most of us in this room have a past, and thank God, he's given us a future. But sometimes we forget where we've come from. And it's easy to become just a little bit flippant about our walk and our life with Jesus. See, our memory sensors are so effective in the way that we live and see life Remember what Jesus said before he died, crucified, resurrected. He was having communion and a, a dinner with his disciples. And he said, whenever you do this, I want you to do it in remembrance of me. I want you to remember this time and this place. Because we're going to do it again. Remember what I did. The life that I gave for you, I did it for you. In marriage counseling, a lot of times, depending on the couple and what we're dealing with, one of the most important things that I do is I'll be talking with a couple and I can just, they're just going at it. There's no thing going on. And I say, here's what you need to do. We're going to put a comma here. Time out. I want you to go home and I want you to think about your courtship days and I want you to think about your first year of marriage and I want you to write a love letter to your spouse from that time. Because you need to remember what brought you together. You need to remember what attracted you to them. You need to remember what it was that was the galvanizing points that brought you together. The sparks of life that were created for you. And can I remind you, loved ones, sometimes some of us, not all of us, I don't know who's where, but sometimes we need to do that with Jesus. Oh, Jesus, this is what you did. How could I ever forget? I don't want to forget, but sometimes my forgetter is better than my rememberer. Take me back. Second thing he says is repent. The church has made kind of a, almost a spectacle of what it means to repent. You can cry and you can throw yourself at an altar and you can snot up and all of that stuff. But that's really not what repentance is. Okay, it could happen. I've done it in the midst of needing to repent. But it's not negative, embarrassing, shaming, harmful. It's simply an evaluative Word that leads one to action and to change. Jesus loves us too much to not tell us the truth about where we are and what we need. And that's why he's writing to these churches that are seven churches. Seven is the number of completion. And he's saying this is complete for every church throughout history. You've got an ear, church. I want you to hear what I say. We're called his disciples, which simply means a learner, a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, you're my sheep, and my sheep hear my voice. Repentance means you see something. Repentance is to turn around. You see you're going the wrong way, and you say, you know what? I don't know why. I don't know how I got here. I don't want to be here, so I'm going to change my direction, because it starts in your mind where you understand, i got to change this. And I got a God that lives within me. I got the spirit of God that can empower me to go another direction. So I turn around and guess who's there? Jesus is saying, I've, in, I've been inviting you. Come on back. Our success doesn't define this, nor does our failure. Jesus, the lover of your soul, invites you back. 
And when you repent, you just recognize, man, I've stepped away from him. I've stepped into this. I'm doing these things. I don't want to do these things. And there's this cognition. And then spiritually, you say, God, that's not where I want to be. The last thing he says is to return. It's the idea of resume. Do the deeds that you did first. Did you know it's never, it's never too late to start doing what is right? That's the power. That's the greatness of the gospel. I've done too much. How could God ever forgive me? I'm too big of a sinner. No, no. God is too great of a savior. You don't have to worry about your past. He starts in our present. And Jesus wants to spend time with you. And he says, I'm just inviting you back. But you've got to make the step. Remember when you used to, when you, when you first come to Jesus and you couldn't wait to pray to him? You couldn't wait to get up in the morning and get your coffee, read his Bible, his word to you, his love letter? Remember when you couldn't wait to get to church, spend time with people? Couldn't wait to worship, lift your hands, sing out, I just kind of go through the motions. He says, I want you to return to the love relationship. I remember when our boys, we were growing up and Trina's, you know, she's pretty neat. And we just said, yeah, we're not going to have any dogs. We're not going to have any cats. We're not going to have any animals. Well, then you get these two kids, two boys. And they grow up, and you love them, love them, love them so much. And they say, can we get a fish? Yeah, so we get a fish, you know, we can take care of that. Then it dies two days later, and uh, so we got to get more fish. And they say, well, you know, these fish keep dying, so can we, can, we get, can we get a dog? And we get a dog, and I probably loved our dog more than anybody. Can we get a couple cats? So pretty soon we've got the Riley Zoo, you know? I mean, overnight, we had them all. But a great lesson is that I learned from that is, see, love has to do with me fulfilling you, not you fulfilling me. It's about me fulfilling my kids, not them fulfilling me. But here's the incredible thing. The more I fulfill them, the more I love them. By the time they left home, we had all these cats and a dog, and I loved them. I loved those dogs and those cats, and there's something about when you fulfill others, that love that you use to fulfill them comes back to you. And when you do that with Jesus, it just can't help but be returned. And Jesus, the lover of your soul, he knows that. And he says, I want you to be there because what I want to do is I want you to eat from the, from the tree of life. We lost that in Genesis 3, but I want you to eat the fruit of God's Spirit. And when you do that, it's going to make all the difference in your life. And that's the promise. This isn't a challenge, it's an encouragement, because every one of us in this room is at different points, and I hope you know where you are. Would you stand? had a whole list of things that, well, okay, if we've left our first love, this is probably what it looks like. I don't think I need to do that. I think the Holy Spirit is really much better at applying those things than I am. So I want us to just take a kind of a moment here and make some space for God's Spirit to work in us and to speak to us and to challenge us and to encourage us. Because he'll always come with grace and truth. So, Father, we come today. We just want to hear your voice in Jesus' name. We want to open our ears to be able to hear your spirit for who we are and where we are and what we need. Father, thanks that you, through the Son of your 
through your son, Jesus Christ, that you are the lover of our soul. Through the light of your word, you'll shine things on us. Lord, help us to understand the power of your love for us that exposes and calls us to that thing called repentance to be able to just hear and cognitively make changes. I pray you'd empower each one of us to lead us back, God, to that place where we are again afresh in love with you. Draw us to you. I thank you, Lord, for a church that I I believe you would affirm in so many ways. We're all on a different place in our spiritual journey. This isn't a church that's lost its first love, but it's it's a reminder, Lord, that I believe you're calling us to don't forget. So, Lord, you seal those things in us today that you speak to us. We give you thanks, Lord, for your love and grace. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.